Welcome to HuffPost Humans. This week, LJ talks to frontline trauma workers about how their job affects them. When we read about horrific child abuse cases, murders, suicides, or the aftermath of tragic accidents, often the last people we pay a thought to are the first responders. That's if we think of them at all. Few of us consider the feelings of the police officers faced with a bloodbath, and just imagine if the deceased happens to be a close friend. Or the lawyers in child abuse cases who have to look at awful images over and over again, or listen to gut-wrenching stories of childhoods ruined by sexual abuse. Graphic details that would play over in your mind when you're trying to sleep. The ongoing Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse has also uncovered the trauma experienced by lawyers representing survivors. The Blue Knot Foundation looks after the estimated 5 million Australian adult survivors of trauma, including child abuse, and they're working to ensure the legal and criminal justice systems are trauma-informed. As part of this podcast, LJ also spoke with Cross of Valor recipient Alan Sparks. Alan came close to ending his life due to post-traumatic stress disorder, but now he's recovered, he's working to help other police officers in an effort to end the stigma surrounding speaking out and seeking help. LJ, there are some really powerful points of view here. There are some incredible interviews here and some unimaginable trauma that these people have gone through. And it's true that many of us just don't think about the feelings of the people who are the first responders. And one of the key notes to their survival has a lot to do with expressing their vulnerability and being courageous, asking for help before it's too late. And sometimes it might seem easier to talk with a person that we know, yet knowing them well can also be a hindrance. But the key, of course, is to asking for help. And that's what a lot of people have trouble doing. And is that something you found speaking to these people uh, that asking for help is is a, a really big step? It's a huge step. And one thing Alan Sharp experienced is his older generation, um, you know, speaking out was not a good thing. And even though he had to witness, you know, the murder of two of his colleagues and suffered trauma in the aftermath, it was a case of when he did say that he wasn't coping, he was just put back on the beat. But he said the tide is turning, but people still need to loosen that stigma and ask for help when they know they need it. Other people you've spoken to as part of this podcast are people you don't really think about, lawyers, uh, and, well, and police officers as well, and their reactions to trauma. Coming to this fresh, did, did you have any insight? Did something surprise you in this when talking to people? Yes and no. I mean, I've got a lot of experience as a crime reporter, um, particularly in WA, where I befriended quite a few lawyers. You know, when you're reporting in courts every day, I became friends with some police officers and they often confide in me about, you know, nightmares that they'd have after attending, you know, horrific cases. Um, but it's the lawyers I think a lot of people don't think about as well, especially with the child abuse cases. They often have to sit through horrific footage, um, listen to stories over and over again. And in the case of Lisa Flynn, who I interviewed, she had a particularly upsetting time when one of her clients ended her life um, in the aftermath of being brave enough to come forward and seek some justice. So it is, it's horrific for them, but a lot of people see the lawyers and the police officers as being tough people and feeling that they're immune to what they see and hear, and they're not, they're just human. Well, let's give it a listen, Tackling Trauma. Lisa Flynn's a lawyer who spent many years working on simply appalling child abuse cases. 
One of her clients, who'd been sexually abused as a child, ended up taking her own life after finally finding the courage in her late 50s to come forward and seek justice. It's not difficult to imagine that Lisa, a mother of three young children herself, often finds it very difficult to cope. Lisa, you've spent many years working on child abuse cases. Can you let me know how you actually cope? What are your coping mechanisms? Yeah, sure. So um, over a number of years as a lawyer, I have represented a number of people that have suffered abuse and it is challenging work hearing their stories and being trusted to be their voice um, as they take the courageous step of, of coming forward and it, it can be really challenging. Um, over, over time I, I think that I have developed some coping mechanisms. One is the fact that I I think that it is easier because I am helping these people, so I feel a sense of not only responsibility but um, that it is a, a privilege to be able to assist them. Um, but I also do need to, to ensure that I am taking steps to make sure that I am healthy so that I can do the best job for our clients. And so some of those things are, are making sure that I do get some time away from the office um, and that I debrief with my colleagues when, when things are difficult when I can um, and those sorts of things that, that I find important. Lisa, can you tell me about some of the cases that have really haunted you over the years, the cases that still live with you today? Yeah, there are. I, I think that even though you hear of horrendous stories happening to clients every day you don't become immune to it and each case each client that um, that I see and that I have the fortune of representing does stick with me some are memorable because of the sheer pain and um, horrendous things that they've endured um, and one of those uh, clients was um, a lady by the name of Annie who came to us um, when I was a quite a junior solicitor and she had suffered really horrendous abuse um, over the course of her life um, being really sort of passed around um, through a group of, of um, pedophiles in the Ballarat area and her life had been really marred by that abuse um, she had tried to sort of move forward with her life but struggled with um, drugs and alcohol addiction which impacted on her relationships. Um, she, she came forward when she was in her 60s. It was the first time, uh, her early, sorry, late 50s she came to us and it was really the first time that she had told anyone about what happened to her. And she came forward um, not with the intention of, of claiming compensation, but really the intention to stop it happening to other children in the future. And it was really courageous of her to do that. It was at a time where it wasn't known, as we know now, that there was such profound and widespread abuse in the region at the time. So her story was really sort of dismissed as far-fetched and fanciful. And it took a lot of courage for her to come forward and to stand up and to um, institute proceedings, which we had to do because it was denied by the other side. And um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the battle was, was too great for Annie and she did 
um, uh, she did um, take her own life in, in that process. But that will always stick with me, not only because it's such a tragic um, story and a tragic end to that to any story, but also because of how inspiring she is to me um, in terms of the courage that it took for her to come forward for really selfless reasons. Um, and I see that courage in all of the survivors that come forward and stand up and take a stand. And often it comes at a huge personal cost to people. Um, but it, it, it's really important that we hear their stories. Lisa, what's it like to have to listen to these horrific stories sometimes over and over again? How do you actually deal with it when you go home to your own family and you're a mother yourself? Mm. Do you manage to put it in a separate compartment in your head? I think that I, I generally say that I'm quite good at separating my work and my home, but I think it would be very naive for me to think that it doesn't have any impact at all. I do have three young children, so their ages are three, five and seven. Um, I do sometimes when I um, am speaking with clients or working on clients' cases, I, I do find myself sometimes mixing the, the two in terms of, oh, look, that was happening to that client when they were my son's age, Denver's age. Um, and when that starts to happen, that, that is hard, that, that's challenging. Um, I guess it might go make me go home and hug my kids a little bit tighter that night um, hearing these stories. Um, but also it's, it's important for um, to be able to, uh, I guess, um, have the, the empathy and the concern for our clients, but also to be able to, um, to bundle that up and remove it so that it doesn't impact my family life too much. And in terms of getting help to do that, I am lucky that I am um, at Shine Lawyers where our employer is very conscious of the need to ensure the health and safety of our people. So, and, and I'm very conscious of that as well. So managing a department that has people that only works in these types of matters. So our whole department is um, specialist and dedicated to assisting people that have suffered abuse uh, and we have young administration people, we've got older people, we've got all different types of people within that team. It's really conscious, I'm really conscious um, of the importance of making sure that they're well um, for their own sake but also so that we're doing the best that we can for our clients and we get training as well as supervision from the Blue Knot Foundation who are really incredible in terms of um, letting us understand, helping us understand vicarious trauma and the fact that no one can be really immune from it. And it's just a matter of making sure that we have strategies um, to deal with it. And each of those are individual, but we do have group sessions with Blue Knot with a trained and um, qualified therapist. And we also have one-on-one. -on -one. Um, in addition, and that's in addition to our employee assistance program that Shine runs. So I do feel that we uh, are very well supported at Shine um, and that's really important when we're doing the work that we're doing, um, as I said, both in terms of our own health 
um, but also the fact um, that we're trained so that we're not unnecessarily re-traumatising clients that come to us as well. Do you think it's an eye-opener for some people to actually realise that lawyers and police officers who society sees as incredibly strong people also suffer in the wake of dealing with these horrific child abuse cases? Uh, most definitely. I, I think that it is something that is perhaps um, not really considered and that's even by the police officers and the lawyers themselves. So um, it's interesting when we, we started the training and supervision with Blue Knot, there were a few in the team that sort of said, look, no, we're fine. Like, we can deal with this. We do it all the time and this is our job. But it's actually those people that are actually sometimes the most at risk of suffering trauma. So part of it is being aware that working in this area can have such a significant impact, um, which, which I think you're right that not everyone does have that recognition that that can have a, a personal and, and very significant impact on the individual. So um, I think that the more that we can do to raise awareness so that people are getting help before they actually really need help, um, the, the much better for, for everyone in those professions. Lisa, thank you so much for your insights and your time today. No worries, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Alan Sparks was awarded the highest decoration for bravery after he rescued a boy from a stormwater drain and came close to drowning himself. He became a national hero, awarded the Cross of Valour. But behind the scenes, his life had been spiralling out of control after a breakdown following a murder he attended that proved to be his undoing. Alan, you joined the police force when you were only 19, so you've had a very long career. But can you tell us about the incident that basically proved to be your undoing? Yeah, that was in 1995. Uh, at that stage, I was a detective working at Coffs Harbour. Uh, I was part of the Special Weapons Operations Team. And there was a um, terrible incident happened at Crescent Head where two uh, general duties police working from Kempsey were called to a domestic dispute. They were told that a, uh, a lady's ex-boyfriend had graffitied her van and had threatened to kill her. So the police officers, uh, one of whom was a friend of mine, went uh, out to interview this person and find out what had gone wrong. Um, unbeknownst to them, of course, he was there waiting for them with a semi-automatic rifle uh, with two 30-round magazines taped together, wearing camouflage clothing, and um, was there ready to, essentially to ambush them and kill them. And that's ultimately what happened. The two police officers were murdered. And um, being part of the Special Weapons Operations Team, um, we were called down from Coffs Harbour to Crescent Head to uh, help with, with what was taking place. And at that stage, the, um, they believed the government was still alive and waiting for more police to turn up so that they could be murdered as well. So over the next few hours, um, myself and my team were sent into various parts of Crescent Head to uh, essentially extract people from their homes who the commanders believed the gunman was going to target and murder. And then later on, the, um, the State Protection Group arrived from Sydney and a, a plan was formulated to assault the gunman's home and uh, see if we could uh, detain him. And uh, it was during that process that um, I first uh, saw the body of one of the, my colleagues. Um, and then subsequently, uh, we found the body of the gunman. He had taken his own life. 
and that was after the home was assaulted and, and the um, area was declared safe. So, and then I um, I went looking for my mate Pete and found Pete and uh, and spent some time with Pete, uh, pretty much trying to process um, why these police officers had been murdered under these circumstances, and um, it, it was a the commencement of psychological feelings that I had never ever experienced before in my whole life. And, and I'd been an operational cop for most of my service and um, had worked in King's Cross, Darlinghurst, the Major Crime Squad. Um, there wasn't much that I hadn't experienced as far as uh, crime was concerned, uh, horrors were concerned. But seeing um, a police officer murdered and, and being with a police officer who'd been murdered, uh, especially my mate, was something I had never ever experienced before. So there was a massive sense of grief and sadness, but also um, it was probably the most terrifying hours of my life that I had experienced. And subsequent to that, um, there was a lot of uh, conflict developed because of um, equipment that was provided to police on the night, that wasn't provided to police on the night, um, situations with the coroner's inquest that I was meant to be a part of that, that um, ultimately wasn't a part of, uh, conflict with the commanders over various aspects. So. The whole situation was a just a horrible, terrible cesspool of, of negative negativity, and and me being trying to um, manage what I now know were the post-traumatic symptoms that I developed from Crescent Head, and also I started to um, not maintain my physical training levels. I started to drink more. I started to withdraw more. Um, I just, I just wasn't coping and wasn't dealing with things. And back then, the, the stigma of mental illness was, was so strong that if you disclosed you were suffering from a mental illness or, or wanted help from a mental illness, then certainly your career path would stall and in most instances it would finish. And uh, we know now that um, that's ultimately what happened to me. I was uh, discharged uh, against my wishes, essentially. Um, and, and that was the... The, 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 main, the main catalyst for the full-blown PTSD and suicidality that I, I later developed. Alan, did you ever get to a stage where you thought about taking your own life? Oh yeah, that, that came into it probably around about um, August uh, of 1996. I started to um, have suicidal thoughts and those suicidal thoughts um, started to uh, strengthen and become more uh, defined as, as to ways and means of taking my own life. Um, Were you on any medication at that stage? No, I, yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't been given any clinical help. Um, I had sought, I finally sought help from my commanders um, and their, their um, uh, how do I say, the solution to the problem was to put me back to uniform, take me out of detectives and put me back to uniform, which wasn't the smartest idea. So again, there was a lot of conflict in relation to that. Um, and it wasn't until I um, finally decided to end my life in October that um, I was then taken for crisis counselling and, and my professional intervention started. Do you think there's a big misconception that a police officer will attend one event and it's just that one event that plunges them into their depression. It's very rarely one event, is it? It's, I would suggest that 
a lot of people see it as being one event, but I would suggest with respect that there would be a history of not only attending horrific and traumatic events, but a history of, of lifestyle that has led them to becoming so ill, and that their physical health, their, their mental health, um, their diet, their sleeping patterns, their, their, the, the health of their, their adrenal glands, all those things. I think if, if you did a research into all of those factors, I would suggest that you would find many parallels with everybody who ultimately, as a first responder, develops post-traumatic stress disorder and associated mental illness. So 80% of those who develop PTSD will have an associated mental illness such as depression and or anxiety. Um, I've covered crime stories over the years and covering courts, often befriended some police officers, particularly in WA where I'm from, and I remember a young female police officer confided in me the trauma she'd gone through after attending a domestic violence situation that had ended in a murder. But she said that a lot of people just assume that police officers become immune to the horror that they see and it just sort of melds into one and they're, they're tough enough, they can deal with it. I mean, that's not true at all. Well, I think, I think with respect, um, I mean, any, any first response work brings with it a level of um, exposure to events that people really should never have to experience. Do you need to develop some degree of immunity? Yes, you do. Do you need to develop resilience? Yes, you do. And I think that what we, what we have to understand is how do we develop that level of resilience that's required if you're going to be operational and wish to remain operational for a long time. So how do we, how do we develop that and allow that person to live as normal life as possible once they're away from the job, so to speak, as in once they've clocked off and gone home? That's where the balance can sometimes become very um, mixed and for a lot of police officers I think they find it very difficult to switch off and try and live a normal life away from the front line where, they, where they're working. Because it would put an enormous toll on partners and families as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, it's, and it's again, it's this, um, I think it's just a natural desire you don't wish to share with your loved ones, what you've been involved with in the day, um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of events that no, you, you shouldn't ever discuss because it does have an impact on them. But then you know people, especially men, are just told time and time you've got to speak up, you've got to speak up, you got to. So, but who do you speak to? Yeah. At the end of the day, who who can you talk about the things you you've seen, you've heard, you've you've touched. Um, who do you talk to about that? So, whilst uh, psychiatric or, or clinical intervention is good, it's it's how do we how do we provide the resources for people to download when they need to download. Alan, can you tell us about the work you do with Beyond Blue, in particular their first responder program and how important that is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been an ambassador for Beyond Blue since uh, 2013 and originally I would uh, go around to various centres in, in Australia speaking to uh, organisations and sporting groups, 
and corporate audiences in relation to uh, my history of mental illness, um, how I developed it, how I overcame it, and the mistakes I made. The core aim basically to follow on the, the philosophy of Beyond Blues aims to reduce stigma about mental illness and reduce depression, reduce anxiety. And it's something that I absolutely adore doing because I know it makes a significant difference. And we know in society that um, we are not mentally well at the moment. Uh, things have changed dramatically, so we have to work collaboratively to, to help that. So I was very proud of the work I was doing for Beyond Blue. And then um, Jeff Kennett, uh, the chairman, uh, he decided that the first responders really needed some focus and really needed some help. And when I heard of that, um, obviously I was very excited about that and very supportive of Jeff's ideas. And they developed a first responder program. And I think that when you have an organisation such as Beyond Blue, who are so proactive in developing programs that, that do work, and then and Black Dog is also doing the same. So you have two of the most powerful organisations in the country working towards providing guidance for our first responders. I think that shows the importance of first responders in our society and it also shows the need that they need to be cared for, respected and, and also given the tools to help them be proactive about their own mental health. Because I think that's the most important aspect. Now I'd suggest that Beyond Blue is, is subliminally saying that you've got to be responsible for your own mental health and you've got to be proactive about your mental health and doing something about it if things go wrong. So yeah, when, when, all, when these two big powerful organisations are working towards developing ideas and concepts and programs, it makes it much easier for the organisations to implement them and I think it makes it much easier for them to draw upon the power of those organisations to change the minds of those who go, you know what, it doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter. You matter. Your health matters, and we care about you, and we want you to be want you to be much much healthier than than uh, you may be at the moment. Alan, how successful or how far have we come in literally smashing through the stigma around mental illness, especially for first responders? Who, let's face it, it's it's got to be one of the toughest jobs. Yeah, it's we have come a long way. There is stigma. Um, there will always be stigma. The way I, whilst our society ever focuses on success, 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 um, there, there will always be stigma in relation to you are not 100%. And whilst this society has an attitude that um, you have to be the best of this, the best of that, the best of whatever, um, if you are not capable of being the best, there will be a stigma in relation to mental health or mental illness. So what's the big message you'd like to get across to police officers in particular? Educate yourself as much as you can about the physiological risks you may face, first and foremost. Then, once you identify those risks, if you start to suffer something that is aligned to those risks, seek professional help to get it, whether it be through a, a psychological injury or a physical ailment or whatever. Because one can capitalise on the other. And we know now that if you suffer from a physical injury for a certain amount of time, the odds are you will develop a mental illness from that. So it's a matter of looking at your whole body and not just thinking, 
that all of a sudden you'll fall off the perch and go mad. Okay, there's, there's a lead up to it. It's up to you to learn the lead up process and step in and do something when that process starts to bend or gets broken. And keep the lines of communications open at all times, confide in people. Yeah, look, look find, find a mentor. Yeah, find someone you trust. Um, I think that's really important. Find a mate and someone you can really open up to and talk to. And that's not easy. It takes... Now, sometimes you can't, you can't find a way to go to a clinician. You can't find a way to ring up and speak to somebody. But if you can just find a mate. And conversely, if you have a mate who you see is struggling, find out how you can help them. Don't just say, are you okay? That's not good enough, sorry. You have to say, I'm worried about you. I really care about you, mate. Um, something's not right. Let's try and work this out. Let's work together. Let's get this problem sorted. It must be exciting for you after everything you've been through that now you've come out the other end, that you're in a position where you can help other people? Yeah, you, I think you... Um, when you become suicidal, LJ, you you lose all sense of worth. You yeah. have lost all sense of worth. Mm-hmm. And you have lost all sense of hope. They're clearly two, uh, two uh, feelings that, that you have. And you, and you say, well, you know, what, what's the point of going on? There is no point. And then when you're trying to get better, you try and understand, well, well why, why did this happen to me? Um, well, now I know why it happened to me. And I know how much I contributed to my ill health. So to be able to utilise my lived experience for a positive purpose, uh, to help those who I, I care and respect about most of gives me a sense of worth that I had never, never ever had before. Well, Alan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Dr Cathy Kesselman is the president of Blue Knot Foundation. They represent the 5 million Australians who survived childhood trauma and abuse. That's one in four Australian adults. She knows that the risk of vicarious trauma is very real for anyone working with people who've experienced trauma or with material which is traumatic. Cathy, can you describe for me the work that Blue Knot does? Blue Knot Foundation is a national organisation that looks after the needs of the 5 million Australians who've experienced childhood trauma in all its forms. So that's an enormous number of people. How many people? 5 million, so one in four adults have experienced all forms of child abuse, grown up with domestic violence, or have had a parent with their own unresolved trauma, maybe because of a mental illness or uh, abusing substances. It's a shocking figure. It's It's a shocking figure. But we have a Royal Commission and we've seen how many people have come forward who've just experienced child sexual abuse in institutions. That hasn't looked at other forms of abuse or trauma, hasn't looked at the family, the home, the neighbourhood. Now, Cathy, at what point has Blue not started looking at the lawyers and police officers who also suffer from trauma, having to hear these horror stories that they've had to hear over and over again? Look, we've known for a long time that anyone who works with people who've experienced trauma and is dealing with traumatic material is at their own risk of experiencing what we call secondary or vicarious trauma. And it's very important that anyone working in any of these areas, whether it's mental health or or the legal and justice sectors, uh, knows how to look after themselves, works in an organisation that is aware of the risks of of vicarious trauma, and supports their staff to be able to come forward and get what they need if they're finding that they're not coping as well as uh, they might. 
Cathy, what sort of help should they give themselves, the lawyers and the police officers? Is it a matter of counselling or should it go further than that? Look, I mean, it's very dependent on individual situations, but really it's about being aware. And uh, we're very strong proponents of what we call trauma-informed practice. So that's awareness of the impacts of trauma, both on the client, but also on people who are hearing those stories. And so it's about having trauma on the radar, understanding the reactions that they may cause in the people that you're supporting or serving, but also understanding those reactions in yourself. So it's about being able to identify them early and put um, strategies in place uh, to help keep you well. Um, So various forms of self-care, work-life balance, uh, which we can all talk about very well, but very few of us do, uh, eating well, sleeping well, but also having um, relationships uh, within the organisation that allow you to tell a colleague that you're not coping so well. So is it a case of letting people know that it's not shameful to say that you're struggling, you can express your vulnerability and be courageous and ask for help? Very much so. So experiencing vicarious trauma is a product of doing this sort of work. So just as uh, trauma responses need to be seen as a normal reaction to very abnormal situations, so too vicarious trauma is often a normal reaction to to, um, supporting or dealing with people who've experienced profound traumas. So how much of a cultural shift do you think we need? within the systems so that people can stand up if they've been traumatised through their work, whether they're a lawyer or a police officer, and say that they need help? Does it have to be a cultural change as well? Look, you know, we've seen uh, how long it's taken for us as a society to be able to talk about trauma at all. Uh, I call it a case of drip irrigation. It takes, unfortunately, a long time for us to break the, the stigma and the shame and the silence that allows you to come forward and speak about what's happened to you and how it's affected you. And I think within um, systems such as um, the legal system, the court system, police system, where um, many people would pride themselves on being invincible and bulletproof, uh, that can be a particular challenge. So yes, it's a, it's a broad-based cultural change at all levels of each of those organisations. From what you know, Cathy, have there been many traumatic cases of police officers or lawyers who just can't take it anymore, they quit their job or worse? Look, I think, you know, we don't hear about them. We know that, you know, sadly, there's a very high rate of depression amongst the legal profession. Uh, Suicide, unfortunately, is not uncommon. Um, We hear of... uh, police officers going off work with um, what, you know, what is usually labelled PTSD, but often that is compounded trauma. Uh, may have someone who's experienced their own prior trauma and then is exposed to trauma during the course of their work. And when you look at the sort of graphic um, forensic detail that uh, you know, police officers and lawyers have to go into, you can understand that they're getting a very big dose of trauma. Uh, often every day in, in, in the course of their work. What sort of message would you like to send to any police officers and lawyers who might be suffering at the result, as a result of working on these cases? That um, people need to understand that this is a normal reaction, that they shouldn't be ashamed, that we all um, can experience uh, the impacts of trauma uh, in various ways and that they need to get the right help, 
look after themselves uh, and hopefully we can see a systems change whereby uh, people's vulnerabilities are not considered shameful. It's considered courageous to come forward and talk about what you need and that uh, colleagues are there to support you. Okay, Cathy, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Helen Rose is a former police officer who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder in the aftermath of an absolutely horrific case that saw her attending a murder involving her close friend. Now, Helen, can you tell me about your story on that dreadful day, that dreadful experience? Can you talk to me about that? Sure. Um, I was working a um, a 6am shift as a police officer and I received a phone call um, about quarter past six that morning from a voice. I knew the voice and I couldn't get the, I couldn't get the lady's name from her and she told me that she'd stabbed her daughter um, and she needed someone to come quickly. Um, I didn't have a name or anything and she was gibberish and I finally got an address out of her um, which enabled me to start um, going there. My partner and I went out there, we found out who was there and I recognised that it was um, my daughter's best friend's home um, and that it was probably her that was um, in trouble. And uh, when we got there, the mother was holding um, quite a decent sharp kitchen knife in her hand and had minor lacerations to herself Um, and I proceeded to go through the house to find um, the daughter and um, found her. She'd ultimately been stabbed 28 times by her mum um, while she was asleep and woke up and about 15 of her wounds were defence wounds. Um, the ambulance came and took her away and um, she died at the hospital um, about three hours later. And uh, the mother... Um, The mother was never convicted. The charges were dropped. Um, She was assessed as being mentally ill um, and spent a couple of years in a mental institution and is now living in the community. Um, And, um, yeah, it was pretty horrendous. That day, I then went to the school. I was the adopter cop at the school that my kids and and she went to and um, went to the school, notified the principal, and enacted the emergency um, plan for such trauma, which is really rare, and um, and then spoke to the kids and, and told all the kids what had happened so they knew the truth as well as the teachers. Oh, Helen, it's absolutely shocking. Can you tell me about the immediate impacts on your life? Um, yeah, it was huge. Um, I guess... Uh, I did so much that day and um, I guess devastating all those kids at school was really hard to take. Um, and then when I got home that afternoon, um, I'd probably gone like nine hours non-stop and um, I got home that afternoon and realised my marriage was over. And didn't get any support at all. Um, and I just, I think I crumbled that day. I got home and I probably ran about 10 kilometres, which I never do. 
Um, and I was also spoken to by the police um, counsellor. And, um, yeah, from that day forward, my life just changed dramatically. Um, I didn't recognise it at the time, but um, certainly the next time I went, I um, the following day I wrote my statement and then um, I had two days that were rusted off and then I went back to work on night shift and when I walked back into work and I didn't realise it because I'd never had anxiety before, but, yeah, my whole body just started reacting being back at work and obviously um, I was scared about, you know, having to face something like that again and probably not having the capacity to do so. Um, so I would sit there and my heart would race and I'd get sweaty and shaky and I had no idea what was going on, but I just worked my way through it um, every day. Helen, you wrote a book about your experiences as well. In what way has that helped you with your recovery? Oh, it helped massively. Um, I started it when I first started seeing a private psychologist and I probably put it aside for a little while. And that was as a therapeutic process. And then as I began to heal, probably about three or four laters, I picked it up and I decided I realised what I'd been through without knowing what I'd been through and not being able to explain it to people at the time. And probably, you know, lost family and friend relationships through it. Some strengthened and maybe some are lost. Um, so I decided to write the book because I wanted to help others. And while people talk about PTSD, not a lot is actually said about what happens to you through PTSD. Um, so I wanted to put my journey down on paper. Um, so people could read it and understand, even if they're just a family or a friend. What I find so amazing, Helen, is that, you know, there is quite a lot of stigma for people asking for help, but you were asking for help, isn't that right? Yeah, I was. I was I was asking for help, and I think the hardest thing is to ask for help because I don't think, and like I said to you, I, I had no idea really what was happening to me or what had happened to me, and it took years, it probably took seven years to understand what had happened to me that day. Um and But the processes are really difficult to get help um, and having to go and when that help expires, having to actually put yourself in that scenario again and explain to a doctor or the relevant person why you need help is just, you just don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. You don't want to have to sit there and explain again why you need help. It's just, it just drains you for the whole day. Helen, what processes do you think need to change, especially within emergency services, so that people can get the help that they really need? It needs to be streamlined um, and even legislated. You know, if if you do attend an incident, it needs to be recorded and linked into um, whichever agency it is that your workplace safety. So if you're going to the work cover, for example, so if you go to work cover, they get a they they know the incident. You don't have to go through that process of explaining it. And they can see, okay, well, you know, this person attended a murder or they attended a five car pile up where four children were killed and a whole family. Yes, this person needs counselling and it's a given. They don't have to explain it and they get the help because if I if I broke my leg, I don't have to explain why I need surgery. And that's the big difference. Helen, what message would you like to send other police officers who might be suffering? Um, they're not on their own. I've, I had someone contact me last week and um, 
saying, you know, they just felt so alone, and you do, um, because, and I think that's just because you just don't understand. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, your journey, it's, it is your own experience and your own journey, but you're not alone. You're not alone. There's so many people out there um, that, um, that will help you. Do you think that a lot of people see police officers in particular as being very tough, strong people who don't need help? Uh, certainly your, your role is to face tough situations and many situations that normal everyday people in their jobs don't do. Um, and I think years gone by there was that expectation even from police officers within themselves and from management and you just got on with it. Um, and I think that is part of it and that was part of my thing was that you are taught to fix situations and you are taught to solve problems and that's your job um, and to make resolutions and this is one that you can't. And so I guess some people feel like they, you know, not failing but they're not, they can't do it. Helen, did you find yourself having to come up with your own ways of coping, developing your own coping mechanisms? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did develop my own coping mechanisms and a lot of them was um, letting go of a number of things, um, accepting what had happened to me, the mistakes that I'd made, um, maybe even people that I'd hurt just through bad choices and not thinking properly um, and just moving forward um, and just living life simply. And how are you today? How are you going? Um, today I'm good. I I sort of say to people that I've come through the journey, but it never leaves you. Um, you know, I, I had a massive anxiety attack probably about a month ago when I saw a piece of paper that I'd actually um, been given by my counsellor in a session on a topic that I, I didn't know at the time was affecting me. And when I saw that piece of paper, my body just, I had a full anxiety attack. I couldn't breathe. My chest was exploding. I just, um, yeah, I, I just needed space. I couldn't, um, just felt like my whole body was going to explode. So there's still days where there'll be triggers that will affect you and you can't control that because that's your brain reacting to protecting you. Um, and it's just your ability to step away and just take time out. But it's certainly... It'll knock you around probably for the rest of the day. It'll exhaust you. Helen, thanks so much for your time today. Your story is absolutely horrific, but you're you're an incredible woman for coming through all of this and out the other end. And hopefully your words, I'm sure they will help other people as well. Thank you. Thank you. um, There is light at the end of the tunnel. And that was LJ with her very moving podcast on trauma. Next week, we're tackling the subject of displacement. And we're talking to Sydney siders who have lost their homes under circumstances that were beyond their control. Remember, if you have a podcast idea you'd like to share, email us at podcasts at huffingtonpost.com.au. We'd love to hear from you.